Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Jake Bowling. Jake is the co-founder and CEO of Scoopos, a market leader in data analytics for the convenience retail industry. Scoopos has raised over $60 million, including a recent raise in April of $23 million for growth funding. Jake has been recognized as a Forbes 30 under 30, and prior to Scoopos, he worked in finance and manufacturing in Shanghai, China. Hey, Jake, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Super excited to have you on. We've been a, a big fan of you and watching what you've been building with Scoopo. So I'd love to hear from you and share with the audience how you started the company and what you're up to. Yeah, I have probably one of the weirder backgrounds you'll hear in terms of a tech founder. Uh, I started my career in supply chain and manufacturing living in China. I uh, worked and lived over there for about four years, helping us start a modular housing company that we sold. And my college girlfriend who followed me over there thinking it was a six month trip and we stayed for four years, chose the next city, which ended up being San Francisco. So we moved out there and unlike every peer I had in San Francisco, I didn't go into tech. I ended up buying a bankrupt gas can company. So it's like your red one gallon plastic gas can. Uh, and it turned out that most of our customers that were buying those products and selling them were convenience stores across the United States. And so other than owning a car and being a consumer of fuel and in-store products, I didn't really know much about the end market. And as we were scaling that company up, what we ran into were a number of challenges around supply chain visibility. We didn't know who was selling our product, how well it was selling, how many units were left out there. Uh, and so when it came down to decisions around working capital allocation, inventory needs of the product, a lot of it was guesswork. And I had some buddies at Coca-Cola that I called and said, hey, you're Coca-Cola. How did you solve this problem? And they kind of laughed and said, well, we've got over a thousand field sales reps that every week walk into the same convenience stores. They eyeball inventory, the coolers, maybe talk to the clerk or manager if they're not super busy and guess what that store needs, punch an order into a tablet and send a truck out the next day. It was like my mind just blew open when I heard that. It was like, if we're a sub $10 million gas can company and you're a $10 billion soda company in this channel, how the hell are we ever going to solve this? And so I went on this deep search for technology to solve the problem. And came up empty handed, but along that journey figured out that there's like 150,000 convenience stores in the U S almost a hundred thousand of those are single store owner operators. So it's just wildly, wildly fragmented. If you were to compare that to pharmacy, CVS and Walgreens control over 80% of pharmacies in the United States. So this is like the last frontier of commerce that hasn't undergone severe consolidation and naively thought, okay, well, if we could build software to sell to these convenience stores, we would solve this problem overnight. Uh, and the thesis was correct. It just wasn't overnight We're uh, we just, the company turned seven, a couple of weeks ago, and we're still on our way into that journey. But that was kind of the jump off moment where we got rid of the gas cans and threw it all in on software. And, uh, the rest is history. We've developed technology now that powers operations for about 15,000 convenience stores across the United States. We now get to work with companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Hershey and a number of household CPG companies that 
had you asked me in 2016, we founded the business. If we thought they'd be customers, I would have laughed and said, there's no effing chance that they'll actually use our technology, but here we are today. That's, it's amazing. And Scoopos, as you said, an overnight success, just like every successful business is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you really dig under the, under the hood, it's usually a long, a long journey, but you guys have, have really come a long way and, and are doing great, great stuff. Um, would love to hear, you know, you started in San Francisco. Now you've been building the company in Colorado. What was, what prompted that transition and what, what's that been like? So when we were starting to build our inside sales team in San Francisco, we were hiring software sales reps that, you know, had worked at other big SaaS companies. And what we found was, you know, our ICP or in market that we we're selling into were single store owner operators of gas stations. And if you find an account executive at another big tech company and try to convince them they need to call a hundred gas stations that day, they're not going to run a single demo and they're going to get hung up on a number of times. Many of them aren't actually cut out to do that. And so this is really like 2017, 2018 that we were making this decision. I grew up in Denver and thought, okay, well, the archetype of rep that we want is going to be likely in the Midwest. And we had hired a few like former Cutco knife salespeople that just blew the brakes off of these other sales reps that we hired from software companies. Like, we don't need to spend all this money on square footage and everything in California. Let's open an office in Denver. Uh, so we opened an office in Denver in 2018, thinking it was just going to be a small sales satellite office. Took one of our reps from San Francisco, moved him to Denver, told him to open an office and hire a team and we'd see how it went and gave him a budget to do so. Fast forward, we then had a COO join us in Denver, a chief revenue officer, built an ops team, had a number of product managers and engineering folks move out and were hired in the Denver market. And so the center of gravity of the company just shifted naturally to Denver. And you know, I will say this here, I was incredibly biased by Denver given my wife and I wanted to start a family and move back to Colorado and get out of the Bay Area. But we were fortunate that that paid off and allowed us to do so. And we were one of the COVID cliches that got out of San Francisco and bought a house in Denver before the housing market went crazy. But it turns out that Denver's been an incredibly hospitable environment for us. We've been able to find incredible talent. The ecosystem's super supportive amongst the tech founders in the community. And when we moved to Denver originally in 2018 as a company, the offices that were being opened across Colorado felt very much like back office and second office functionality. We'd have like an inside sales team like we were trying to build. Uh, our thesis was always that Denver would actually shift into being a tech ecosystem the moment P&E folks started to move into the market. And we've seen that really play out over the last four or five years. Uh, so I'm super, super bullish over the next decade of the Denver tech ecosystem or Colorado more broadly, just given that trend that we're seeing. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's how exactly what, what we thought as well, Jake had seen. I mean, I know it's all been about that talent, right? That used to be the knock on people is, hey, you can't find a great COO, you can't find a great head of edge, you can't find a great head of product. And we've just been importing all that talent though. I mean, I know in your case, your COO is somebody who moved from the coast as well. And um, you're seeing a lot more of that talent coming. And once they come to Colorado, they certainly don't want to leave. No, I, and you can't blame them either. It's neat <laughs> to, to live and to build a business or to work in a business. We, we absolutely think so. So you mentioned the ecosystem and just curious how much you've been able to get involved in it, obviously moving during COVID, a bit of a challenge, but love to know, um, you know, what your take on, on what you're seeing here and, and any companies locally that you're particularly excited about. Yeah, <clears throat> there's a few and some of which I believe have been on your podcast before, but uh, you guys obviously know Velocity Global, Ben Wright's an incredible founder. That business is mind-blowingly amazing. The pace at which they've scaled, the way they bootstrapped for the majority of that journey. 
and the culture of that company is really fantastic. And the other that jumps out to me is a company called Evolve Vacation Rentals, which uh, Brian Egan's one of the smartest entrepreneurs I've ever interacted with. He was smart enough to quit his job as an attorney and start a tech company instead of it a while back. Uh, but again, just one of these durable growth companies that isn't one that many people recognize the name of, but it's one that I think will be one of the first Denver tech IPOs over the next five years. Um, and I think the culture of that company as well is just wildly inspiring for entrepreneurs like ourselves. We, we could not agree more. I mean, Brian is somebody we always, we know super well, of course, and we always direct people to when they're looking for a role model of how do you build a company? How do you build a company that not only is really durable, as you said, that's, you know, long-term solid grower, but also is a place that people consistently say they, they love working. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Egan's done a fantastic job. What, what's really interesting too, Jake, about both those companies and just the current market, and love to hear your, your take as well, is both Velocity and uh, Evolve are two companies that were really built more methodically, right? In Velocity's case, been bootstrapped for a long time. In Brian's case, right, they have never been grabbing headlines, raising the most amount of money possible at the highest valuations. And here they are, two of the companies most best positioned right now, given the mar market that we're seeing. How do you think about that and um, how much money that you raise as part of the journey for Scoopos? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think philosophically, Brian and Ben, we align very closely on like just ignoring the headlines. I think a lot of folks get the signal to noise ratio screwed up pretty quickly as they build a company and super easy to get sucked into Twitter and see every one of your peers is raising at ridiculous valuations and $5 million of ARR, they're a unicorn. It's like that just is super disconnected from reality. And I think a lot of those folks are realizing that today. Uh, and we certainly wish them the best and think that they're going to figure out a solution there. But you know, I think Brian and Ben did a fantastic job with it. We were always an unsexy company. I mean, building software for gas stations, like, can you think of a more boring thing to go out and pitch? And, you know, the, the cliche stories are real. When we raised our seed round, we pitched 49 funds and heard no 49 times and pivoted the model a bit. We're fortunate enough to find a seed investor in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, that believed in what we were building. And the requisite for their first $150,000 check was I actually had to move to Chattanooga for four months. Uh, I thought it was going to be like a soft commit. I'll go down for a week or two and then they'll let me go back to California. And turned out that they were very serious about that. Um, and my now wife, then girlfriend was like, you just moved to Tennessee and didn't tell me. Um, so she's going to get a lot of shout outs on this and hopefully I'll, uh, I'll convince her to listen too. But, um, you know, I think, it, the force constraints of being an unsexy company and really just having to find ways to compound growth without being hyper-reliant on outside capital is a, a really healthy thing for an organization because those constraints really do breed creativity. I saw a story yesterday that, you know, and since I have a, a newborn, it, it resonated with me. Dr. Seuss had a $50 bet that he can write a book with 50 or less words and Hop on Pop have, has exactly 50 words. And that book sold more than 10 million copies. And I think that's just a really good example of the creativity that these constraints can really, really reinforce within an organization. Um, for us, again, we were never the shining star of the SaaS community, but we just continue to build and build and build. And, you know, going from zero to a thousand stores was a huge milestone for us and one that we felt was nearly impossible. Um, I don't, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read the zero to one book by Peter Thiel, the hardcover copy version I've got on my shelf behind me. 
page 134, there's a section called distribution doldrums. And he uses the convenience store industry to illustrate that you, know, you have these really fragmented end markets and it's nearly impossible to get software into them efficiently. Now, fortunately, I read that after we started the company because TLC and convenience stores were going to be impossible with a scared me shitless. But instead, it really does force that creativity. And I think capital is a, another example of that. Not going to sit and cry poor. We've been really fortunate that we've had great investors join the journey along the way. And, you know, first it was Dynamo out of Tennessee, then Toba Capital out of Los Angeles. And then we had Insight Partners in New York join the journey. Unilever Ventures, so having like one of the world's largest consumer packaged goods companies believe in what you're building. You know, all these are just these little reinforcement mechanisms for validation as you're growing. But again, for us, it's, you know, never been raised gobs and gobs of cash and just burn, burn, burn. It's been a constraint that we view as really healthy for the business to grow responsibly. We could not agree more, Jake, 100%, right? And necessity is a mother of invention. I think that's why we believe, in, and it's been well documented, that times like these where capital is constrained, definitively the best time to build companies, right? It's a little counterintuitive for people, but the DNA that it breeds in founders and in the company culture early on is something that you just can't replicate and will serve companies super well for their uh, duration of their journey. I agree completely. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll see some amazing companies come out of really every ecosystem, but Denver in particular, I think being historically underserved from a capital perspective uh, is going to force a lot of entrepreneurs to think creatively and build awesome companies. We agree. Well, Jake, want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your biggest lesson. You have had quite the journey so far, and I'm sure no shortage of things that you've learned along the way. But if you had to distill it down, what's the biggest one you've learned? Yeah, it's a tough question because I've made a ton of mistakes over the years. But I think starting the company at 26, one of the most important things for me was actually being super impatient with inputs. And what that taught me was to be patient with outputs. So I think focusing a lot of time and energy on inputs, whether that was, you know, how we want to design company culture, how we wanted to think about processes within the organization, product development, customer development, you know, all aspects of how we thought we could build the business and knowing that that would eventually lead to the outputs that we wanted. And we were joking at the top of the call, but you know, it's an overnight success story, seven years in the making now, you know, it didn't happen overnight, you know, it took us six years to get to $10 million of revenue and then immediately exploded thereafter. And these inflection points are real for organizations, but only come as a result, I believe of really being hyper-focused and impatient with the inputs and requiring team to really focus time and energy there and allowing that team to trust that the results will come over time and to focus less there. I think it's an incredible lesson, right? It's that that classic trust the process dynamic. And I guess the question there though, right? And we wrestle with this ourselves running range or you're doing any endeavor, trust the process. How do you know though, when the process isn't the right one, right? How do you, how do you know that if you're not judging it by the outputs, how else do you determine? I think there's other means by which to measure. So I think if, you know, company culture is a great example. Like if you see a company starting to flourish, and the value system that you've architected to really guide decision-making at the company and how you reward and improve behavior within the organization. And you see that really start to foster over time. And you can always course correct there along the way. I think if you were looking at revenue systems designs, you know, it's certainly outputs are important to measure and I wouldn't want to undermine that. But I think looking at the rep productivity, customer calls, how those are progressing over time, customer reception to product, from a product development perspective, all those are things that you can measure outside of just the pure output number. 
Um, and I think for a company like ours, like when we first went to market, it wasn't like we had a really robust sales organization. I actually sat on trucks outside of Columbus, Ohio for about two months going door to door, knocking on bulletproof glass, talking to convenience store owners, trying to convince them to buy software. And these are people I don't pop out of bed every morning thinking, oh my God, I want to buy some technology today. Uh, but not having a high conversion rate, but understanding what the customers were actually interested in, what problems that we could solve with technology was an important input that eventually led to an output. Got it. Makes a ton of, ton of sense. Can you think of any specific times where you really had to reinforce that and trust the process, even though you weren't necessarily seeing the results yet and, and you had to trust that they were coming? Yeah. I can give you two examples. Uh, one, hopefully gets me some credit at home, but you know, knowing that we were on the right track, building a business, but being broke in doing so and throwing it all in on the company prior to raising a seed round, uh, we would Airbnb our apartment in San Francisco. We had a 200 square foot office in a really rough part of town with a futon on it. And I would convince my wife that we should Airbnb our apartment, use the proceeds to reinvest in the company and sleep on a futon. Uh, that was really trusting inputs on my part and her part more importantly, but has eventually led to a really successful company that continues to compound. Um, another example of that, I think, is knowing that inputs were maybe needing a tweak. And a lot of that was around product development um, because we you know, had a little bit of an ivory tower approach at one point in the company's history where we thought we knew better than our customers, You know, a little bit of a, a Steve Jobs type of mentality. And we were wildly wrong. You know, we spent a lot of money and time building a certain piece of technology that just flopped commercially. Um, and knowing that we didn't trust the inputs on the way in and, you know, kind of reinforced back to basics in terms of product development, listening to our customers and being less focused on the output, I think would have saved us some time and money on that decision, but has really informed product strategy at the company from 2018 onwards when we made that mistake. Got it. That's great. And, and Jake, how do you reinforce this? idea at Scoopos among your employees about, hey, really, we're, we're going to trust the process. We're going to judge you based on, you know, the inputs, you know, as much if not more than, than the outputs. Yeah. A lot of it comes back and ties back to the, the value system of the company. One of our values is be the French laundry and the French laundry for anybody I'm familiar is like a, an incredible restaurant outside of Napa Valley. Uh, I've never actually eaten there, but I've heard that it's amazing. Gavin Newsom likes to host dinner parties there. And the antithesis of that for us is the Cheesecake Factory, where you can get like, you know, lasagna or orange chicken or anything under the sun, and it's all going to be really, really mediocre. And so telling the team that if you focus on things in a quality manner, and it's, you know, you don't have an endless menu of options that you can do, but you just focus your inputs on a small number of things, the outputs will eventually come. And, you know, in the French Laundry's case, you will be one of the world's best restaurants or have that Michelin star. In our case, we will eventually get those customers onto the platform. We will continue to compound at a rate that we're super excited about, but we have to really focus our attention on those inputs to get there. Got it. I, I love that, right? And really focusing on who do we want to be as a company? Do we want to be the the more boutique, high quality, fewer things, or you know, something to everybody mass market? Um, and making that decision, I think using analogies that people can actually resonate with. I think that's great. Yeah. Everybody's been at the Cheesecake Factory, and I don't know if anybody's ever left a, a five-star Yelp review there. That's right. And I, very few of us, including myself, have ever been to the French Laundry, but it yeah. certainly has a, a certain place in, in the psyche, right? The collective psyche of like, okay, that's very aspirational. I, I've promised our team when we IPO the business, I will 
we will rent it out for a week and everybody can try it. <laughs> is that a good sales pitch that works with convenience store owners, by the way, is, hey, uh, just calling you from the French laundry of software yeah, uh, for your definitely. store? <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome lesson. Uh, love what you guys are doing and really excited to keep following your your progress as you build the next uh you know, the next great Denver company after after Evolve, right, to go go public here in a few years. Where can our listeners follow along with what you're up to? Scoopos.com and my Twitter handle, which is very rarely used, is at Jake Bowling. But uh, more importantly, just follow the company because that's where the exciting stuff's being built. But in all seriousness, Adam, I really appreciate you inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure joining you guys. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. 